KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to podcasts. The coronavirus pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Matt Leon. We actually wanted to kind of take a step back and and dig into the virus itself here and get some insight into why it's so dangerous compared to other viruses and situations we faced in the past. And also, as we start to look for any semblance of normalcy going forward uh, with all the numbers and stats that get thrown at us, we wanted to, to get a feel for what are some stats we should really keep an eye on that will start to tell us that maybe things are getting better. So for all this info, we had a great discussion with Dr. Ebbing Lautenbach. He is the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at the Perlman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. Really interesting stuff. Check it out. To start with, as someone who studies infectious disease, as far as pandemics, big outbreaks like this go. Is this one kind of playing out the form what you should expect with a dangerous virus like this? You know, I think each virus is different and each outbreak uh, of an infectious disease is different. And I think the challenge with COVID-19 is that we continue to learn things about the virus that are new every day. And that has uh, some to do with how easily it's transmitted from person to person. Uh, We're learning more about what the various factors are that put some people at greater risk of doing poorly clinically than others. And we're learning more about how to better diagnose it, uh, both the acute infection itself, uh, as well as the uh, immune response of individuals when they they have infection. And so I think, uh, you know, comparing this to, you know, to other viral pathogens, this one is highly transmissible. It's not the most transmissible, but it is more transmissible than most of the viral infections that we tend to come into contact with on a more regular basis, influenza probably being a a prime example. In terms of how severe it is when people develop infection, uh, it's uh, it's certainly worse than influenza. Um, How much worse is still sort of up for debate because a lot of how we judge how bad a uh, a viral infection is, is based on how commonly people get hospitalized and uh, and what the mortality rate is. And in order to really figure those numbers out precisely, you have to know how many people at baseline are infected. And that's still a a moving target, uh, partly because takes a while to develop diagnostic tests. And when you develop diagnostic tests, it depends on how quickly they can be rolled out. And so I think that's that's going to be a a moving target. And I think over the course of the next weeks to months, uh, we'll learn a lot more about exactly how widespread this infection is, how many people are infected. And that'll give us a better sense of um, of those people who are infected, how often does that lead to the need for medical care, for hospitalization, and in the worst cases, how, uh, how frequently does that lead to death? So we are in the midst of a pandemic. Uh, I was actually surprised to see that the last pandemic we had it was only back in 2009 because I have no, I remember hearing about H1N1 in news stories we did and stuff like that, but frankly, it didn't touch my life as all. Why is the response 
here been so extraordinary as compared to 11 years ago? You know, I think it's just the characteristics of the uh, of the virus. Um, so H1N1 as a as another influenza virus was at least something that we were uh, more familiar with. Uh, we generally know sort of how the flu works in terms of transmission. Um, the challenges with H1N1 uh, were that it was a strain of influenza that was novel. And so any pre-existing immunity that exists in the population, just based on the seasonal influenza, wasn't there for H1N1. It was also a much less severe infection when it uh, when it caused infection compared to the uh, to the coronavirus that we're that we're dealing with now. So it really has a lot to do with uh, uh, you know the severity of illness when you become sick um, and uh, and the likelihood of transmission from person to person. Kind of going along with that, kind of take us inside the virus some more. I mean, we heard so much about SARS and MERS in the past. What is it about the makeup of this? Is it how easy it is to to get infected and stuff like this that just kind of is setting it apart? Kind of, you were, if I was a student of infectious disease, how would you kind of break down the COVID-19 and what makes it uh, such a almost like a perfect virus? So I wouldn't. I'm not sure I would characterize it as a as a perfect virus, um, but I think it's you know it is part of a of a family of coronaviruses uh, that we've seen before. And so every year there are circulating coronaviruses that generally cause sort of upper respiratory infection, cold sort of sort of syndromes, and they are obviously not terribly severe. We don't. Although we can diagnose them, uh, we typically don't go out of our way to diagnose them because they generally are self-limited. People are uncomfortable as they typically are with upper respiratory infections. And you get better after, you know, after a couple of days to a week, week and a half, depending on um, on sort of, you know, your, your individual response to the virus. So that's typically what we see with coronaviruses. Um, Obviously, we have the examples of more severe coronaviruses. SARS uh, back in, uh, in, in the early 2000s, uh, MERS about 10 years after that. And those were also uh, coronaviruses, uh, but tended to cause much more severe infection. So um, the mortality rate of, uh, of SARS uh, was around 10%. Uh, MERS even higher than that on the order of about 20 to, to, to upwards of 25%. Um, so those, compared to the current coronavirus, were in fact much more uh, aggressive, virulent uh, viruses in terms of causing infection and causing causing severe infection. What helped us in those cases is that they tended to remain relatively geographically localized, meaning that uh, there were fewer than uh, than ten uh, SARS infections in the United States. There, uh, there wasn't. Uh, really widespread transmission. And SARS went away, you know, in a fairly short order of time. Uh, MERS tends to crop up every every once in a while, but has remained geographically limited uh, to the Middle East and, and primarily Saudi Arabia. And so while those were much more severe infections than the current coronavirus, um, they weren't nearly as, as widespread geographically. And so I think it's the combination of being a more severe uh, virus causing more aggressive disease uh, than the typical run-of-the-mill uh, yearly coronavirus infections that we see, but also being much more easily transmissible and much more geographically widespread than things like MERS 
and uh, and SARS. So it sort of falls in the in the middle of the spectrum of what we've typically seen in the past for human coronavirus infections. But I think it's that combination of being more aggressive, but also much more easily transmissible that has made this one a much more challenging um, problem to deal with. If you watch the news for any length of time or you watch any of the briefings, we kind of get besieged with stats, you know, new infections, new hospitalizations, unfortunately, number of deaths. Um, as an expert in the field, what are the the numbers, the, the statistics you look for that really kind of tell the story of whether we are starting to see light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I, I think still the most useful uh, data points to look at are the number of, of new positive cases. And I think what that tells you is, you know, how close are we to uh, where are we on the on the course of this trajectory? Are we still still moving up uh, and still have not hit a peak? Have we hit a peak and are now sort of plateaued and hopefully coming down? And I think the number of new positive cases really gives you the best information in terms of, of helping to uh, to tease that out. The challenge with with looking at the number of new positive cases just sort of by itself is that that's determined in large part uh, not only by the number of people who are positive, but also on our testing capacity. So if you have limited supplies in terms of tests and testing kits and reagents, in general, uh, you're only going to test people uh, where that test is going to make a difference. So somebody who uh, looks like they may be coming into the hospital is more severely ill, um, somebody who's going to require a higher level, a higher, higher acuity of care. So the proportion of cases that are positive is going to be higher because the, the, um, uh, the pre-test uh, sense that you have before you ever run a test on somebody as to whether you think it's going to be positive is pretty high. Somebody who presents with fever, respiratory symptoms, uh, perhaps exposure to somebody who's known positive. Uh, if you're testing mostly that population of patients, the proportion of tests uh, that are positive is going to be pretty high. As testing capacity gets better, so we're able to test a larger proportion of the population, meaning not just people who are more um, uh, more ill, but uh, but people who have been exposed to other people who um, uh, who are ill, even asymptomatic people in certain patient populations. Uh, while the proportion of tests that are positive is probably going to go down, the number of new positive cases is is still going to uh, to go up. So I think tracking the number of new positive cases is really important. I think what those numbers mean and how we should interpret them is going to change over time as testing capacity uh, simply gets better. If we're able to roll out more in the way of um, of tests in in a health system, in a city, in a state, in the country, we're going to ultimately be able to identify uh, a larger number of people who are, in fact, uh, positive. I mean, there's a, there's a good sense now that, for the reasons that I've described, that we, we really only know the tip of the iceberg in terms of the number of people who are positive. And estimates being anywhere, uh, you know, around, uh, you know, a tenfold to a, to a hundredfold difference, meaning for every patient that we know is positive now, there are probably at least 10 other ones that are out there who are positive that we just haven't tested yet. And it may be far greater than that. As we roll out more in the way of testing capacity, we'll, we'll get a better sense of that. And so I think that's, that's still, you know, the number of new cases, uh, new positive tests is probably still the best benchmark to, uh, to look at. If you want a sense of 
what the strain is on uh, on hospitals and health systems, then looking at the number of new hospital admissions due to COVID, I think is a is a reasonable number to look at as well. And that's a reflection, not just of the number of new cases, but also the number of cases that require hospitalization. And so it gives you a, a better reflection of what the strain on a hospital may be. And that's a, that's a number that should track uh, with the number of new positive cases in the community, although as we test a larger proportion of people, likely a smaller proportion of those people are going to end up coming into the hospital. I think what the numbers that will lag behind those numbers are the numbers of people in the hospital due to COVID. Um, and the reason for that is that the numbers of people in the hospital uh, due to COVID are based both on the number of new cases that come into the into the hospital, but also those patients who are in the hospital and staying in the hospital for a prolonged period of time because they're taking a long time to get better from, uh, from COVID. And so those numbers uh, will tend to lag behind uh, and show improvement later than the, than will the number of new cases in the uh, in the community. Kind of going along with that, when you mentioned the numbers that are lagging, are there any stats that we kind of get thrown at us in different ways that maybe aren't inaccurate, but we shouldn't pay as much attention to because they're kind of out of context or they don't tell a true story? Are there any that jump out at you that maybe are numbers we should take with a grain of salt? You know, I think the, um, I'll mention two things. One, I'll go back to looking at the numbers of new cases and making sure that you understand the context in which testing is happening. And so if testing is still fairly limited, meaning that you have a lack of availability of testing kits and you're just not testing that many people, your cases in a, in a specific geographic area are not going to look that bad. And that may not be because there aren't that many cases. It's just that you don't have the capacity to test as many people as you would like. Um, and so whenever you look at the number of new cases in a given area, you have to understand that in the context of what the overall strategy for testing in that area is. And so I think that's important. The other thing that I think will come down the pike sooner rather than later is serologic testing, which is still very early on. And this is looking for antibody responses to people who have, uh, who have had infection. There's still a lot of unknowns in serologic testing, uh, not the least of which is how good are the tests? Uh, you know, how frequently do they identify people who have legitimately been infected? And so interpreting any data with regard to serologic testing, I think, is going to be a, a work in progress. And we'll learn more about these tests as they get rolled out. But that'll obviously be key in helping us to ultimately come up with strategies for how we slowly start to reintroduce people back into the workforce, into schools and things like that. And you want to have as much data as possible, good, reliable data to be able to inform those sort of decisions so that you don't find yourselves back in the same position that we're in now if we end up opening things too soon. Seems like it's pretty universal that we're a year, 18 months from a vaccine. But how about I've heard people talk about, uh, you know, antiviral treatments that could really be an important arrow in the quiver when it comes to kind of managing this in the short term. Are you confident that maybe we aren't close, but we are closer to having that than a vaccine? 
I think we're certainly closer to having better therapeutics uh, than we are to having a vaccine. I think the time frame that you've suggested is about right. Um, I think if we had a vaccine a year from now, um, that would be really good news. My sense is it's probably going to be, you know, more you know, closer to a year and a half from now. Um, uh, you know, therapeutics, there are a lot of, uh, well, not, not a lot, but there are a number of drugs that are being tested in clinical trials now. Um, you know, the data that exists so far are primarily in very small studies or in studies in which there isn't a control group, meaning that they only report patients who actually got the drug. And those are really hard studies to interpret because some people are just going to get better on their own, regardless of whether they get a drug or not. We and a number of other sites are uh, are heading up or involved in a variety of clinical trials looking at different drugs. Um, those uh, studies, because there are a lot of patients, have been able to enroll very quickly. So I'm confident that we'll have data from, at least preliminarily, preliminary data from those studies within the next, you know, month to month and a half that should give us some good early data on how good these drugs are. And then, you know, thereafter, we should hopefully be able to do some additional work to figure out if there are certain populations that tend to respond better to, to some of these drugs or not, um, or if, there, uh, if there's a certain time window in the course of disease where drugs are going to work better than others. So, for example, uh, you know, one could envision that a direct you know, antiviral agent is going to work better the earlier you give it in the course of disease rather than later when you know, a certain series of events have already already been set into motion. So I think we're going to learn a lot more over the course of the next month and a half to, uh, to two months. We'll get some preliminary data from a lot of these trials, and I think um, that will help us uh, a lot to, uh, to figure out better strategies to treat people. As we're talking here, it's mid-April. Is life a little closer to normal, you think, in, let's say, mid-May? It is really hard to, uh, to predict. I think, you know, most places in the country at best have have plateaued and are perhaps seeing a small downturn in the number of new cases. And there are some places that have not uh, hit the peak of cases yet and likely won't hit the peak for another couple of weeks. So I think this will be very geographically based in terms of how we start to return to a uh, at least some semblance of normalcy. And a lot of that will depend on you know, better testing of, um, you know, both active infection, uh, contact tracing of people who are exposed to, uh, to others who are infected and serologic testing. So, you know, I think uh, mid-May being a, a month away, um, we'll certainly know more at that point. And I think uh, at the very least, we should be devising strategies at that point for how we might roll out at least a limited return of some segments of, of society to normal. I, I think the key is that you want to have the best data available um, to make those decisions because I would much rather roll normalcy back out a little bit later um, and, and do it in a controlled way versus do it earlier and find ourselves back in, in much the same situation that we're in now. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic here in the Philadelphia area, or if you want to know how what you see or hear on the news is going to change your own life or your own routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. 
Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. My name is Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon. 